Tonight is October 5th, 2014, and the title of the message is Right Side Up. And uh, after yesterday's election, that's got a bit of a double meaning. <laughs> Turn with me to Luke 12, verses uh, 16 through 21. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grains and my goods. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself, but is not rich towards God. I love the parables of Jesus. He just has a way of putting things in their proper perspective. Painting a clear picture of the human heart the human condition, how we interact with each other, how we interact with God. Now, y'all's Bibles probably calls this the parable of the rich fool. I think a better name is the parable of the rich selfish fool. Because, yeah, the man is rich and he's a fool. But he's not a fool because he's rich. He's a fool because he's selfish. I want to take a focus in on the thoughts in the words of the rich man. Notice the language that he uses. He says, he thought within himself, and he said to his soul. Now it's evident that he had no thought of what God thought and what God said. He thought, what shall I do? He said, I will do this. I will bestow my fruits and my goods. I will say to my soul, soul, you have much goods laid up for many years. Eat, drink, and be merry. In this rich man's short little monologue that's only five sentences long, he uses the word my five times, I will four times, and I three times. And there is no reference to God at all. It's evident that God is not in any of his thoughts. There is evidence of self, self-will, self-satisfaction, with absolutely no thought of God in his life. He acted as if everything in life were his own possessions, with no thought of the afterlife, no thought of the fact that he is an eternal being, and did not recognize that his very breath was in the hands of the Almighty. Jesus' teaching here is pretty simple and straightforward. Life does not consist in the abundance of material things. Material riches are temporal and pass away. Eternal riches are eternal. Enduring forever. The rich fool was rich toward himself, not rich towards God. The rich fool thought only of himself. He had no thought of God. The rich fool was only interested in this life. He was not interested in eternal life. Turn with me to Mark 8, verses 34 through 37. So 
says, Then he called the crowd to him, along with his disciples, and said, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? I'm going to underscore verse 35 here. It says, For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. The word here used for life is psychin. Uh, the short definition of psychin is the soul. In other words, the mind, the will, and the emotions of the human being. So what Jesus is saying here is if you want to hold on to your mind, that is the way that you think about things and the way that you see the world, you want to hold on to, uh, to your will, your desires, and your plans for your life. You want to hold on to your emotions, the way that you feel about things and the way that your corrupt heart leads you astray. You want to hold on to those things, then ultimately you'll lose your life. So interestingly enough, this is an invitation by Jesus to life. Not just existence, but abundant life. But it's an invitation to life via death. Lose your life. Lose yourself, and you'll find true life. The Apostle Paul called himself a bond slave and a free man. Now, this is one of the great paradoxes in life. Human freedom is found in the submission to the will of God. What sounds like bondage is in reality the ultimate freedom. And what sounds like freedom is in reality the ultimate bondage. Let me say that again. So what sounds like bondage, what sounds like God is trying to rain on your parade or, or give you restrictions or undo burdens, if you truly give your whole self over to God's will, then you find ultimate freedom. And what sounds like freedom, you know, being able to do whatever I want, whenever I want to do it, how I want to do it, you let that spirit take over your life, and ultimately you'll find yourself in bondage. It's paradox, no doubt, but let's talk about these two words of denying yourself. So when it comes to the teachings of Jesus, like deny yourself, what we end up doing is we end up lying to ourselves. Uh, we think, okay, deny myself. I need to deny myself. I'm going to follow Jesus. And evidently this is an invitation to life and to freedom and to purpose. And I need to lose myself. I need to take up my cross after forgetting myself. So we say, this year I'm going to be about self-denial. I'm going to live selfless. Before long, we realize we are attempting self-denial by ourselves. And what is happening is we start lying to ourselves, thinking there's going to be less of ourselves, because we're denying ourselves, only to realize that the more we deny ourselves by ourselves, the more of ourselves we're left with. And now denying yourself is about yourself. It's nothing more than a New Year's resolution, an emotional suggestion. We all know how New Year's resolutions usually work out. 
Now, there are some people that I know, even lost people, who are extremely motivated and, and they always do what they say they're going to do. Well, that's not me. I'm pretty normal and many times I don't do what I say I'm going to do. Particularly around midnight on December 31st. And I say, I'm going to deny myself this year. Now, good luck with that. Now, it's just discipline. It's just willpower. And that inherently, in and of itself, does not have the power to produce satisfaction and fulfillment in your life. You can't reduce the teachings of Jesus to a New Year's resolution. Denying yourself, done by yourself, only produces more of yourself. And we just continue to lie to ourselves, like wearing fig leaves. Now, if we're truly going to deny ourselves, you can only deny yourself when you're preoccupied and consumed with someone else. Denying yourself is being consumed with yourself. We have a problem. But if you learn to deny yourself and get preoccupied and consumed with someone else, hence the way Jesus said his invitation. He says, if you want to come after me, pick up your cross, deny yourself and follow me. It's framed there by me. Me is not me. Me is not you. Me is him. The key to this incredible invitation by life is bookend by Jesus. We become preoccupied and consumed with him. What ends up happening is we lose sight of what we want. When we want it, how we want it. So Jesus says whoever has to hoard his life or keep his life will end up losing it, like trying to grasp the air. We're trying to get stuff and get what we want and get what we deserve. I want this and I want this. And what ends up happening is, ironically, you'll lose satisfaction and fulfillment and meaning. But Jesus says whoever loses his life, and notice why we lose our life, he says, for my sake and for the gospels. You know what he's saying? He's saying whoever loses his life in light of me and my goodness and my mercy loses their life in light of me and the good news about me, my story, they will recover their life. They will find meaning and purpose and satisfaction. So we lose ourselves. Why? Because we're to be good, disciplined, noble people. For most of us, that'll never work. We lose our life because we forget. In light of remembering and rehearsing and recounting all that Jesus has done for me and all that he's done for you, all that he's accomplished for us, we lose sight of our urges, our surges, our desires and our wants. And in some cases, what we believe are our necessities. We lose sight of ourselves and we get enamored with his plan. We get pumped about his story because now his story is our story. And before we know it, we're living in this place called satisfaction and fulfillment. That's amazing because many of us have lived long enough to know that when you get your ideal job, when you finally get that income you wanted or you finally have the respect that you want. Sometimes that right there can be one of the emptiest days of your life. 
See, because up to that point, your emptiness, it was understandable. It was comprehensible. You say, you know, I'm empty because I don't have that job yet. I don't have that corner office. I don't have the six-figure paying job. I don't have the beautiful wife. I don't have the kids yet. But when I get the beautiful wife, when I get the kids, when I get that corner office, then I won't feel empty or hollow anymore. And then all of a sudden, the day happens. And you're looking around, and you're like, this is this isn't what I expected. I'm still me. Empty. Hollow. Unsatisfied. Jesus taught this. He says, if you try to get what you want, when you want it, and how you want it, even if you get it, you'll lose your life. You won't find true life. But if you lose sight of what you want, I'm not saying you can't lose sight of your goals and desires and aspirations, but you don't, you don't hang your satisfaction and your fulfillment on them happening. If they happen, great. But if not, then God has a better plan. And I'm enamored with His plan. I'm going to follow Him, Amen. obey Him no matter what. Amen. I know so many people in this room, and you know this. You live it. I look at your lives, and you're an incredible example of living beyond yourself. You know that living beyond yourself is the key to satisfaction and fulfillment. We got families in here that sell stuff, sell jewelry, guns, furniture, so they can fly halfway across the world to be able to pour into fellow believers and give them the spiritual nourishment and encouragement that they so needed. Men who will hop on a plane to Peru push their bodies to the extreme limits and beyond so they can share the gospel with people who may never have heard the name of Jesus before. Families will sell their dream house. They built with their own hands. Move at the drop of the hat because Jesus asked them to. The list goes on and on in this body and just the incredible examples of living beyond yourself. But not living beyond yourself for the sake of living beyond yourself. But living beyond yourself because you're so consumed with someone else and that someone else is Jesus. Let's look at some examples in Scripture of denying yourself. Turn with me to 1 Samuel 18, verses 1 through 4. Because after David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David, along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow, and his belt. Let's focus in here on Jonathan and David. It says, Jonathan became one in spirit with David. Other translations say their souls were knit together. Jonathan and David had that same spirit about them, much like Joshua and Caleb and Jesus and John the Baptist. How did that happen? Let's picture the scene here that we just read. This 
David is sitting in King Saul's tent right after taking down Goliath, still holding the giant's head in his hand. I can imagine Saul just asking David, how did you do that? David begins to recount the story and tells him what Goliath told him. And he gets to that part where David said, then I told that uncircumcised Philistine, the battle is the Lord's and he will deliver you into my hands. I think that right there is when David and Jonathan's souls were knit together. See, Jonathan was hearing this story. He heard those words and something just jumped inside of him. You see, Jonathan had that same spirit in him. Turn with me to 1 Samuel 14, verse 1. It says, One day Jonathan, son of Saul, said to the young man bearing his armor, Come, let's go over to the Philistine outpost on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Go to verse 6. Jonathan said to his young armor bearer, Come, let's go over to the outpost of those uncircumcised fellows. Perhaps the Lord will act in our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. Now verses 8 through 14, please. Jonathan said, Come, then we will cross over toward the men and let them see us. If they say to us, Wait there until we come to you, we will stay where we are and not go up to them. But if they say, Come up to us, we will climb up, because that will be our sign that the Lord has given them into our hands. So both of them showed themselves to the Philistine outpost. Look, said the Philistines, the Hebrews are crawling out of the holes they were hiding in. The men of the outpost shouted to Jonathan and his armor bearer, Come up to us and we'll teach you a lesson. So Jonathan said to his armor bearer, Climb up after me. The Lord has given them into the hands of Israel. Jonathan climbed up, using his hands and feet, with his armor-bearer right behind him. The Philistines fell before Jonathan, and his armor-bearer followed and killed behind him. In that first attack, Jonathan and his armor-bearer killed some 20 men in an area of about half an acre. Did you notice that same spirit about them? See, I think it was when Jonathan heard David recount the story of him and Goliath that Jonathan's spirit testified with David's spirit. Deep cried out to deep. And that same spirit told Jonathan, this is the king of Israel. This is my anointed one. And from then on, it says that Jonathan loved David as himself. From that point on, Jonathan's focus was on David, not himself. And you can tell by his actions. The first thing that Jonathan gave to David was his robe. The robe symbolized his stature, his importance, his rank. I mean, remember here, Jonathan was the heir apparent to the throne after his father Saul died. And so Jonathan reaching out and taking off his robe and giving it to David, he was saying, I give up my rank for you. I give up my fame for you. I give up my standing for you. I'll give up my throne for you. He wasn't trying to hold on to what he wanted. He wasn't trying to hold on to his life. He gave up his life for the true anointed king of Israel, and by so doing, he gained true life. 
His life was now about what he could do for David. How he could serve him. How he could help him become king. He was able to deny himself because his focus was on someone else. Now this reminds me of John the Baptist. You know, John was an anointed man of God. So anointed and effective with his preaching that people asked him if he was the Messiah. But John knew his place. He knew, that the, who, he knew who the rightful king of Israel was. And much like when Jonathan heard David, his spirit testified that David was the true king. When, Jonathan, when John saw Jesus, deep cried out to deep, and John knew that the true king of Israel was now on the stage. It's a great shadow of our King Jesus with Jonathan and David. Now the world see that's a negative thing. They say, oh, poor Jonathan, poor John. They had to give up their bright future. But they didn't see it that way. They gave it up with joy because they loved the rightful king. They were one spirit, one accord, and so they did it with joy. They were honored to take a position of servanthood. Let's contrast that with Jonathan's father, Saul. We see Saul desperately trying to hold on to his life. The primary focus is on himself. How he can hold on to his stuff, hold on to his... He wants to remain king. And the result is Saul is tormented in his soul. He lives the rest of his days in a miserable, empty existence, always grasping at the air, trying to hold on to his life. Turn with me to 1 Samuel 14, 24. See, Saul tries his own version of denying himself. He says, Now the men of Israel were in distress that day because Saul had bound the people under an oath saying, Cursed be any man who eats food before evening comes, before I have avenged myself on my enemies. So none of the troops tasted food. So we see here Saul issues an order that none of the troops eat food. And look why. So I can avenge my enemies. This is Saul's New Year's resolution. He's trying to deny himself, by himself, for himself, and he's left with more of himself. See a great picture here of the right and wrong way to deny yourself. You have to be focused on someone else. Amen. Focused on how you can serve, not be served. Jonathan's life is, a fra is, a, is framed as a man who does anything to serve David. He finds his purpose in serving Saul's framed as a man who wants to be served by David and eventually wants to kill him and wants him to have no influence in his life. Now let's bring this home to the church. How many times have you heard someone say about a church, I'm just not getting anything out of it. Uh, I'm not getting anything out of the sermons or I don't really like the music. I know I've said it. Not about here. <laughs> <laughs> What about saying, how can I serve at this church? What is it the Lord wants me to do for this body that I'm a part of? 
Reminds me of a conversation I had not long ago with a great man of God. This guy was at a church where he was very active. He served in many areas of the church and he was pouring into people, discipling people. He had a function. He had a purpose at the church. It wasn't about what he could get out of it, but what he could pour into it. And as time went by, the people that he was pouring into began to rise up. And they started serving at the church. So much so that over time he realized he was no longer really serving. He had become more of an attendant. He had such a servant's heart. And when he realized that, he, the Lord was telling him his, his time is done here. And it was time to move on. This is so contrary to many who move on, not because they didn't have anywhere to serve, but because they weren't getting anything out of it. We all know it. Many men and women say and they believe, maybe not out loud, but in their actions and in their heart, the church exists to give me a pleasurable experience. So I don't want the sermons to be as long as I want them to be. And don't make me feel uncomfortable about my life. Don't talk about sin. Don't talk about the cross. Don't talk about anything where I might actually repent and confess and do business with the deep levels of my heart. I'd rather not have that. Just giving me an encouraging, non-convicting word and then dismiss me in a timely manner. Get me out to my car and I'll get out of your hair. That's becoming American evangelism. Nothing required of you, nothing asked of you, nothing but your attendance. But that's not biblically church at all. And it's unhealthy. Turn with me to Acts 2.42. Let's take a look at how the first church operated. And God's desire His community to be one in spirit just like Jonathan and David were one in spirit. We are communal beings. God made us to be in a community. God is in a community within himself. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We are community beings and we are born to interact with one another. And we're healthier when we do. Even when we don't want to. Now it's just better when I'm around people. People can encourage me and I can share things that I'm, they're going through and they can do the same. So Jesus builds this community, his holy temple, made up of faithful followers that continue to this day. The book of Acts gives us a window into this first community that Jesus builds. The Holy Spirit filled the community of Jesus' followers. They start to get together, and there was prayer, and there was singing, and food, teaching, and preaching. We are an extension of that very first church in Acts. And here we get a window into the first followers of Jesus. I want to look at some of the community dynamics that speaks volumes to this extraordinary life of satisfaction that is predicated on denying yourself, living beyond yourself. This community is new, but they started with 3,000 in one day. So Acts 2.42, it says... They devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. They devoted themselves to the teachings of the leaders of the church. 
and they wanted to hang out, just enjoy one another, fellowshipping, socializing. And they were praying, and they were eating bread. For the record, the first church was not gluten-free. So this is pretty practical. You want to know what the early church was doing? They were listening to the leaders in the church. They were hanging out together, and they were praying. It goes on in verse 43. It says, Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs being done by the apostles. And awe came upon every soul. What's that word awe mean? It means everyone had a sense that God is awesome. Everyone had a sense that God is big. God is real. God is actively involved. God is among us. It means everybody had a profound consciousness of God's presence and reality amongst them. They were lovers of His presence. God is real. It wasn't tradition. It wasn't custom. It wasn't religion. It was God living and breathing amongst them. And they were aware. He was just, just as real to them as anyone else on the planet. All was upon everybody. And many wonders and signs were being done by the apostles. People were being miraculously healed. Miracles were being demonstrated, and most of all, people were deciding to follow Jesus. It goes on in verse 44. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property, verse 45, they sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. They were selling their possessions and their belongings, distributing the proceeds to all as anyone had need. I don't get the impression that they were selling their stuff as some type of top-down order from the leaders of the church. I get the impression that it was spontaneous. This tells me that thousands of people spontaneously and organically get a sense. They receive a spirit that says, we need to take care of each other. I'll sell this. I'll sell that. God will take care of me. We just need to make sure everybody is taken care of. And not just the material things, but more importantly, their spiritual needs. And what's happening with these people? They're denying themselves. How? Because Peter did a six-week series at the church about denying yourself? No. Everyone is just really aware of Jesus. It was just so real to them. And this reality, this spirit, it found its way into the hearts and the souls of these thousands of people. And they were living so aware of Jesus and His majesty and His beauty that before they know it, they were just spontaneously selling stuff, giving stuff away. No one was telling them, you better live generously. They were just moved at the core of who they are, denying themselves. Verse 46 says, Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. Day by day they were gathering together. And they ate their food with glad and generous hearts. I do have a theory why they're so happy. Their pastor wasn't on the Atkins diet. <laughs> Although I think about 8,000 feet to that mountain, he probably wished he had a few less carbs. 
But you got to love these people. They're getting together. They're glad. They're generous. Generous in their heart. These people are pumped. And they're happy. And it's not because they're under some extraordinary government where taxes are low. It's not because there's not evil dictators. They're living in some pretty unsettling times. Economically, governmentally, socially. Yet you have these thousands of people who seem incredibly content, incredibly thrilled about life, who seem totally motivated to give stuff away, to get together, share their food, be glad and generous to their core. Generous is an emotional disposition to think about others beyond themselves. Man, what is going on with these people? They're denying themselves. And why? Uh, they just kind of lost sight of themselves. Say, so what about their dreams? What about some of the nice cars that they wanted? What about the big homes? I mean, they're probably giving away vacation money. I'd be pretty depressed. Yet this community is unanimously pumped. It goes on in verse 47. I love this. It says, They're praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. They're all pumped and loving God. It goes on to say, The Lord was adding to their number. They were being saved daily. Well, I bet so. I mean, these people have a special spirit about them. They're walking around with the awareness that God is real. God is big. They're living beyond themselves, serving one another, serving their city, serving the nations. And what are they? They're full of joy, satisfied. No wonder their number was growing daily. That kind of spirit is contagious. Look again at Acts 2.46. It says, Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke the bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. Now that sounds a little bit like heaven to me. They're all getting together. They're glad. Everyone is thinking about everyone else to the core of their being. Look at the people in this early church. They have a different spirit about them. Something not from this world. Something heavenly. I read my Bible and I see these people living heaven every day. Living for others. Serving people. And boy, are they happy. Full of joy. I want to live like that. The story goes on. The same group of people, they continue to grow. And a problem comes up in Acts chapter 7. The church is growing so much, and as it's growing, some of the widows are being neglected, and some of the distribution of the food. And the church leaders, they get together, and they just don't have enough time to track it all. It's been an administrative nightmare. So they appoint seven men that are full of the Spirit, who are really good with details, good administrators. 
make sure that the widows are taken care of and some of the other administrative details that are needed as this community grows. One of these seven guys is good with details, an administrator, a man full of this generous spirit. This man loves Jesus, and I'm sure he's one of the guys that was selling stuff and just being generous to his core. This man, his name is Stephen. Because Stephen was so effective at sharing the gospel and he was performing these miraculous, awesome miracles. A group of religious leaders falsely accuse him. They make false accusations against him. And through this process, he ends up telling them the story about Jesus. And Well, they didn't want to hear what he had to say. He's basically telling the gospel to a group of religious terrorists. Religious leaders who are killing Jesus' followers. They're killing women and children. Stephen gets caught up in one of these moments, and in Acts 7.54, he begins to tell them the story of Jesus. It says, And when they heard this, they were furious, and they gnashed their teeth at him. Now in verse 40, 55, you know, Stephen right here, just so overwhelmed at actually seeing God, he says, But Stephen full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. They didn't want to hear that. Verse 56, 57 through 58. So at this, they covered their ears, yelling at the top of their voices and they all rushed at him. Stephen is here. Rocks are being thrown at his soul. He's moments from death. And in first, this verse 59, he says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then what you know, look what Stephen does next. Now before we move on, I want you to put yourself in Stephen's shoes right now. You are surrounded by people that have your life in their hands. You have done no wrong that they are bent on ending your life. Their number one priority now is to remove you from this earth. They want to see, it, see to it that you never see your family again, that your wife becomes a widow, that your children grow up without their father. Their desire is to remove you and your influence that you might have on this world for Jesus. I know what my reaction should be in this situation, but I honestly don't know what I would do. But it's very possible that I'm pleading for my life. And I'm telling them, I have a wife and two boys. Please don't kill me. Or I cry out to the Lord and ask Him to save me from this situation and destroy these evil men. But look what Stephen does in verse 60. With his last breath, these are his final words. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And then he died. Who does that sound like? 
One of the most profound things that Jesus said on the cross is forgive them, Father. They don't know what they're doing. You know, I've read that so many times. I said, well, that's what makes him God. Because that's not what I would say. Yet here we have Stephen, a volunteer staff member at the church who's good with details. Man, he looks a lot like Jesus, doesn't he? Jesus is pretty real to this man, isn't he? So much so, I want you to see how far Stephen has gone in living beyond himself. He is so preoccupied with the reality of Jesus and his love for hurting humanity that the very men who are executing him, he uses his last breath to pray for them. Man, who is this Stephen guy? With his final painful breath, so similar to Jesus, he says, God, I'll see you in a minute. But one last prayer I'll pray on this planet. I will pray for the men who are murdering me. Make sure you forgive them. Don't hold it against them. I read this and I'm like, God, what happened to this guy's heart? And then something dawned on me. Stephen was not born with this nature. He was born into sin, just like me. He came from the same diseased, corrupt stock that I came from, that we all came from. It was the power of the Holy Spirit inside of him that formed him and shaped him to be able to have him have a reaction like that in that situation. He's just an ordinary man with an extraordinary God. I realize I am so far from that guy. But I pray, Lord, if you can do it in Stephen, do it in me. I want to live so beyond myself that I'm thinking about the well-being of people who are currently hurting me. Now, it's one thing to live beyond yourself for those who have only done you good. Stephen went so far in his preoccupation with Jesus that in the midst of one of the greatest injustices in the book of Acts, he prays for the evil men. And who do we know is one of the men he prays for? You think there was some type of symbolic prayer with no effect? Look at the next verse, Acts 8.1. And Saul was there, giving approval to his death. One of the men Stephen prays for is Paul. Tell me this was a symbolic prayer that didn't matter. Stephen's final words could have very well saved the soul of the Apostle Paul. The prayer of a righteous man is indeed powerful and effective, and Stephen proves it right here. I want to close with one last thought. What if this spirit of denying yourself, others focus living, is actually preparing us for eternity? What if God's original creation was intended to be a creation of others focused living, loving others, serving others, 
What if that's what it means to store up treasures in heaven? What if denying yourself and developing the spirit spirit that lives beyond yourself is how you gain a better resurrection? Because that's what you'll be doing for eternity. What if when Jesus comes, he'll turn this world system, as we know it, upside down? Or maybe we're the ones that turned it upside down. And he's coming to turn it right side up. One last verse. Turn with me to Luke 12, 37. Look what Jesus says just a few verses after the parable of the rich, selfish fool. He's now talking about his second coming. He's talking about being ready for his return. Look what he's going to do after his kingdom here on earth is firmly established. His first order of business, his first official act as king is to do what? Truly, I tell you, he will dress himself to serve. He will have them recline at his table and will come and wait on them. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them ready. Wow. I've never noticed that before. Jesus here is setting the stage for his kingdom reign. He now shows how his kingdom is going to operate. He establishes the proper hierarchy that I believe he intended from the beginning. Jesus' teaching of the greatest among you will be your servant will come to full fruition in the kingdom to come. Jesus will come and turn this world right side up. Thank you.